Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. So thunderous was their opening flop that Simon and Garfunkel effectively split up. Writer Nick DeRizzo. Paul Simon recalls two first impressions of Art Garfunkel. The first was at their fourth-grade talent show. Garfunkel sang Nat King Cole's Too Young, so perfectly pitched, even a crowd of nine-year-olds froze in awe. But Simon says he really met him later at a local confectionery near their school. Simon popped into the shop one afternoon to pick up the latest Captain Marvel comic when he noticed Garfunkel skulking around the candy aisle shaking a box of good and plenty by his ear. Then he watched him put that box back on the shelf and pick up another, again shaking it up at the side of his head. That is, until the owner of the shop came bursting from behind the counter, shouting at Garfunkel to leave his store. When the spindly middle schooler was kicked to the curb, Simon asked the owner, why the big reaction? And he explained... It's because Garfunkel comes into his store every day and shakes each box of good and plenty, 
listening to determine which has the most licorice inside. Simon said, to sum up, Garfunkel was a very unusual guy who could sing unusually well. It was the early 1950s in Forest Hills, Queens, where Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel grew up but a few short New York blocks from one another. Simon's mother was an English teacher. Simon's father was a bassist and band leader for whom music was oxygen. Donald Fagan once said, Paul Simon was raised a specific kind of New York Jew, almost a cliche, who values music and baseball highly. He writes and plays guitar right-handed. He bats left. Meanwhile, down the street, Garfunkel was rapidly becoming the, quote, most famous singer in the neighborhood. He describes himself back then as a goody-goody, with God's gift running through his vocal cords. Garfunkel had an affinity for stairwells. The acoustic reverberation hit his ears just right. He could often be found whistling on the landing at the synagogue or stepping in rhythm over sidewalk cracks. One day, his father brought home one of the first wire recorders. Garfunkel recorded his perfectly pitched vocals and listened back before taking what he heard to the stage. In the sixth grade, Garfunkel joined the theater department and starred in Alice in Wonderland. His co-star? One Paul Simon. It was during that school play that the pair realized they could sing together. And not only that, the White Rabbit and Cheshire Cat could harmonize together. They also laughed together. Simon was a real cut-up behind the scenes. After rehearsals, they smoked their first cigarettes and talked about their first loves, the Yankees and the Everly Brothers. And soon, they were best friends. The pair practiced their harmonies, intervals in thirds, listening back to their progress on Garfunkel's wire recorder. Garfunkel realized in order to synchronize perfectly, he needed to stare at Simon's mouth as they sang. He said if he watched closely enough, he could identify the exact millisecond Simon's tongue touched his palate. They'd be almost nose to nose by the end of Wake Up Little Susie. Middle school for the best friends became about huddling around the record player listening to Bye Bye Love and huddling around the television set watching American Bandstand. And by junior high, they decided to start their own band with three of their friends, a doo-wop group they'd call the Peptones. The Peptones' claim to fame was that they were the chosen entertainment at school dances, and those performances secured them their first attention from the ladies. But the Peptones didn't last long. By 1956, Paul Simon decided he didn't want to be a cover band. He was interested in writing songs of his own. And that year, he penned his very first original tune, The Girl For Me. The Girl For Me became a block party hit, and Simon's dad was so overcome with pride, he even sent a copy of the track to the Library of Congress to get it copyrighted. So it wasn't long before Simon wrote a second song, 
This one went by the title, Hey School Girl. It was sort of a take on the Everly Brothers' Hey Doll Baby. Simon nailed down his vocals, then Garfunkel joined in with the high tenor. And this one had real promise, promise that extended beyond a three-block radius. So the duo decided to take their sound to Manhattan. They scrounged up $10 and brought it to the Sanders Recording Studio on 7th Avenue to make an official recording. And as they laid down their vocals, a man in the waiting room couldn't help but overhear. Sidney Prozen, the owner of a little company called Big Records, was at the Sanders recording studio that day. And Sid Prozen liked what he heard, so he popped over to put faces to voices. At first glance, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel couldn't have been more different. Garfunkel was all limbs. He stood five foot nine with a mop of curly blonde hair that pushed him over the six foot mark. Simon peaked at 5'3", with straight brown locks tamed in that short, clean-cut kind of way. What they shared was a love for doo-wop, the same teachers, and all the same friends. But there was one other glaring similarity that trumped them all. They looked young. Because they were young, they were 15. Minors. And if Prozen wanted to sign them, he'd need their parents' permission first. Mrs. and Mr. Garfunkel signed the record contract. Then Mrs. and Mr. Simon. But not only that, Mr. Simon came downtown to record bass on the track. And in 1957, their first single was released. Hey School Girl by not Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, not the Peptones. No, Prozen gave them a new name. Tom and Jerry. Almost overnight, Hey School Girl broke the Billboard Hot 100. Copies were flying off the shelves. 10,000, then 20,000, then 50,000 copies sold. By all accounts, Tom and Jerry's first single was a hit, so their fancy new record label lined the duo up with their first-ever television appearance. On American Bandstand. The American Bandstand. The very show the two rushed home to watch every school day at three. The The pair was queued up to perform after Jerry Lee Lewis, who would sing his 1957 popular hit song, Great Balls of Fire. Then, the 15-year-olds were on. Hey, school girl in the second row. The teacher's looking over, so I got a whisper way down low. It was a wholesome doo-wop ditty performed by baby-faced 10th graders, and the crowd ate it up. Soon, over 150,000 copies sold, and the record peaked at number 49, with a little write-up in Billboard magazine that compared Tom and Jerry to Phil and Don. Simon said it was an incredible thing. He'd picked up a guitar one day hoping to be Elvis Presley, and there he was, performing for a cheering crowd. Garfunkel said that appearance made them rock stars at school. Soon, money started rolling in. $4,000 to be exact. And Simon did what any freshly minted rock star would do. 
He bought a shiny car and a shiny guitar. Then he promptly crashed the car right in front of Art Garfunkel's house. Without wheels, but with drive, Tom and Jerry pumped out two more singles, That's My Story and Our Song. But those two records were total flops. Tom and Jerry were down and out. The Hey Schoolgirl flame soon extinguished, and no one was buying copies of their subsequent songs. They were looking like one-hit wonders. But Sid Prozen wasn't done with them. Or more specifically, he wasn't done with Paul Simon. So he pulled the songwriter aside and offered him a solo contract under a new name. And Simon accepted. Without telling Garfunkel, he recorded a new song called Teenage Fool. Garfunkel said in his memoir, What is it all but luminous? He eventually received a phone call informing him that Tom and Jerry was just one of the hats Simon was wearing as an artist. He was now True Taylor. But True Taylor was not so true. The 15-year-old was crushed. He said, simply put, it was betrayal, with all the theatrics that word evokes. It was a wound that would cauterize but never fully heal. Garfunkel later said he's not known for forgiving or forgetting. Simon wrote off the whole experience as a youthful indiscretion, the lapse of a teenage fool. But between their utter flops and Garfunkel's utter devastation, the 16-year-old doo-wop duo decided to go their separate ways. Simon went to Queens College to study literature. Art would study art at Columbia, and they wouldn't speak for five years. We'll be right back. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In their time apart, the pair honed their individual skills. True Taylor went nowhere, so Simon spent his days deepening his understanding of the business side of the industry. He sharpened his writing skills, he learned to play bass, and even began traveling to England, where he found himself knee-deep in the young, indie folk scene. He recorded with a few local groups. He wrote and performed demos for other artists, throwing more pseudonyms into the mix, including Paul Kane. Meanwhile, in New York, Garfunkel was also composing, when one day in 1963, he got a call from his former partner. Simon had graduated from college and had big news. He said, Artie, I just wrote my best song. Simon had about five complete songs in his notebook, and he was eager to get some fresh ears on the material. So he showed up at Garfunkel's apartment, and he played him the tunes standing in Garfunkel's kitchen to an audience of roaches. What struck Garfunkel was Simon's use of juxtaposition. At that time, a lot of folk music tugged on imagery from the center of the country. As music critic Jeffrey Himes put it, Simon didn't draw on the rural folk of Woody Guthrie, but on urban symbolism, a concrete foundation against which Garfunkel's vocals could scaffold effortlessly. They were young New Yorkers creating music in what was perhaps the most political genre during perhaps the most political time. The songs were good, so Garfunkel agreed to rekindle the partnership. So they began working under a third name, Kane and Gar, and frequenting open mic nights at local clubs. They also frequented the local frat house. Garfunkel said it was a good space to practice. When the kids overheard them singing, they'd go nuts for the lyrics. By the winter of 1963, Kane and Gar had three original folk songs on their set list. He Was My Brother, Sparrow, and The Sound of Silence. Simon took a day job as a song plugger at a New York music publisher. In other words, he pitched compositions to recording artists and record label teams in the hopes of matchmaking. He didn't have much luck with his artists, but one day he saw an opportunity to plant a seed with an industry connection he'd made. He mentioned to a producer at Columbia Records that he and his friend Artie were a duo who'd just come up with new material. 
that producer's name was Tom Wilson, and he happened to be Bob Dylan's producer, with a keen ear for folk talent. Wilson agreed to a live audition, and one tune in particular perked his hit-making ears. The Sound of Silence, the best song Paul Simon had ever written. Wilson was intrigued by Garfunkel's soft harmonies and Simon's soft poetry. So Wilson presented the duo to the label's A&R team. They gave him the green light. Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel had a one-year record deal, and they got to work on their debut album. It would be called Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., an acoustic folk album comprised of 12 songs totaling 31 minutes, six covers, including Dylan's The Times They Are a Changin', and six originals, including The Sound of Silence. Simon was thrilled with the recording. He thought The Sound of Silence stacked up against Dylan. The 23-year-olds completed the album in early 1964, and on October 19th, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., was released. But not under the Peptones. Not under Tom and Jerry. Not under True Taylor. Not under Kane and Gar. Under Simon and Garfunkel. The album artwork of Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., featured Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel standing at the 53rd Street subway station a fitting nod to Simon's Sound of Silence lyrics. But Columbia hadn't dropped any singles prior to the album's release. There was no introduction, no buzz, and sales tanked. Less than 1,000 copies sold. Ultimate Classic Rock wrote, Wednesday morning, 3 a.m., veered into two precious reductions of the Everly Brothers-style harmonizing, without the fully formed literary weight that marked their later successes. Here's the thing. 1964 was a big year for music. The Beach Boys' I Get Around, Louis Armstrong's Hello, Dolly, Roy Orbison's Oh, Pretty Woman, Mary Wells' My Guy, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas' Dancing in the Street, and The Beatles'. 1964 was the year the Beatles achieved five songs in the Billboard Top 10, all at the same time. Can't Buy Me Love, Twist and Shout, She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Please Please Me. It was also the year they came to America. And when the Fab Four crossed the Atlantic, musical tides changed. Columnist Nick DeRizzo wrote about the flop, When the album was issued in 1964, it was rendered utterly passé by the arrival of the Beatles. Columbia Records, who completely misunderstood the rising zeitgeist, actually subtitled Simon and Garfunkel's debut album, Exciting New Sounds in the Folk Tradition. The folk revival had come, and it had officially gone. The following year, Tom Wilson got to work producing one album and one single. The album was Bob Dylan's brand new Bringing It All Back Home, 
a record divided in two sides. One, classic Dylan accompanying himself on acoustic guitar. And two, Dylan accompanied by a full rock band. The forerunner of the American folk revival had gone electric. Later that same month, Wilson produced The Birds' electric cover of Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. Dylan's album peaked at number six on the American pop album chart. The Birds soared to number one. Following the success of his other artists, Wilson offered Simon and Garfunkel a pivot. What if they put aside their folk roots and adopted a new electric Simon and Garfunkel sound? Together, Wilson helped them produce a new song titled Somewhere They Can't Find Me, which featured a substantial rock beat, complete with electric guitar, drums, and horns. Then they wrote a second rock song called We've Got a Groovy Thing Goin'. But the higher-ups at Columbia Records weren't fans of either track, so much so that they refused to release them. Frankly, Simon and Garfunkel didn't love them either. Simon and Garfunkel's debut album was dead on arrival. Columbia advised its distributors to forget the album existed and spend time on its records that actually stood a chance in the market. And Simon and Garfunkel split up for a second time. By 1965, a completely disheartened Paul Simon returned to England. He began working on solo stuff, gigging around London. Art Garfunkel began his master's degree in mathematics. Then one day, Tom Wilson was at the Columbia offices when the label's chief of promotions passed him in the hall and asked if he knew Wednesday morning 3 a.m. had sold a thousand copies. Wilson cringed. A thousand copies. The stain on his reputation he was well aware of. Wilson didn't need reminding. So he muttered a half-joking, no need to rub it in, and kept on walking. But that's when the executive stopped him. He wasn't talking about those thousand copies. He meant the thousand copies that just sold in Florida. He was wondering if Wilson knew what caused the bump. Wilson was perplexed. He had no idea why. So he made some calls. To Wilson's surprise, it turned out that some local DJs in Miami had started playing The Sound of Silence. And when people heard the song, they bought the whole album, since the song was never released as a single. 1,000 copies didn't impress Columbia's corner offices. But it did give Wilson, along with his Southeast distributor, Mark Weiner, an idea. Clearly his instincts were correct when he identified the tune as the duo's best work. And clearly there was interest in the song as a single. So one day, after a recording session for Bob Dylan, Wilson asked some of Dylan's backing band to hang behind a little while. He played them the original recording then asked them to find ways to insert themselves, to elevate the sound and graduate the tune from folk to folk rock. 
suddenly Wilson had on his hands a more upbeat version of the serious acoustic song. So he called up Simon and Garfunkel. As the story is told in Newsweek, Garfunkel simply shrugged Wilson off. After being told repeatedly their debut album was a flop, he'd become disconnected from the project as a whole. Simon reportedly had a similar reaction, discouraged, distant, detached. So Wilson took those shrugs as the go-ahead. And on September 13th, 1965, he released The Sound of Silence 2.0 and began sending it to radio stations. And to his shock and delight, the remix started picking up in Boston. College stations started playing it, then other nearby college towns started playing it. And by October, the record had clawed its way onto the Billboard charts. So Garfunkel called Simon in London. He asked him if he knew what was going on. Simon was unaware, so he requested a copy of the record. But British singles had a small spindle hole, like LPs. American 45s had a large center hole, which meant Simon, with his British record player, couldn't play his own record. So he had to quote, fashion a 45 adapter with coins, beads, and other random bits, until the vinyl started wobbling its way around the turntable. The first notes played, and Simon hated it. His cheeks turned red hot. He was incensed. What was he listening to? It was folk rock. Simon said he'd rather not have a hit at all than have a hit with folk rock. It was like they'd dressed up his poetry in a clown suit. Simon picked up the phone and called Columbia HQ. He demanded the record be pulled immediately. But the executive on the line laughed. He told him not only was the song number one in Boston, it was now number one in all of New England. And it just crossed the Billboard Top 50. He cut through Simon's outrage and told him, he better hop on a plane. By January of 1966, Simon was homeward bound, where he was reunited with Garfunkel as the sound of silence reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100, selling over one million copies. Columbia told them to strike while the iron was hot and get a follow-up record in the hopper. So the now twice-divorced pair got back together. They'd title their second album Sounds of Silence, featuring a new and improved third version of the title track in folk rock arranged by Simon. It also featured new songs like I Am A Rock and April Come She Will. The album reached number 21 on the charts and garnered positive reviews from critics across the country. Soon after, the duo re-released Wednesday Morning 3AM before dropping their third album that same year, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, featuring songs like the 59th Street Bridge Song and Scarborough Fair. That album reached number four. 
suddenly Simon and Garfunkel were everywhere. The Ed Sullivan Show, The Mike Douglas Show, The Andy Williams Show, and The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. They weren't Elvis. No, they were quirkier than that. They were two unusual guys who could sing unusually well. Then the following year, they got a call from someone in an entirely different industry. Film director Mike Nichols was a fan, and he asked if Simon would write a couple songs for his upcoming film, called The Graduate. The pair wrote two songs, Punky's Dilemma and Overs, but Nichols rejected them both. So Simon offered another, an incomplete ditty he'd been playing with, called Mrs. Roosevelt. Nichols liked it. He really liked it. Mrs. Roosevelt became Mrs. Robinson, and the rest is Oscar-winning, Golden Globe-winning, and Grammy-winning history. Mrs. Robinson shot to number one on the Billboard charts. And the following year, Simon and Garfunkel released their fourth studio album, Bookends, featuring songs like A Hazy Shade of Winter, America, and Mrs. Robinson. Then on January 26, 1970, Simon and Garfunkel released their fifth studio album. It would be called Bridge Over Troubled Water. The title track reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100, where it would stay for 10 weeks. Then it topped the charts in nine other countries, spawning more mega hits like Cecilia and The Boxer. Almost overnight, Bridge Over Troubled Water became the best-selling album of 1970, then the best-selling album in history up until that time boasting 25 million copies sold worldwide. At the following Grammy Awards, Bridge Over Troubled Waters swept the night, taking home Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best Arrangement, and Album of the Year. Rolling Stone wrote that the seminal album marked the end of the 60s and of Simon and Garfunkel. That year, the duo known for its harmonies split up for a final time. Disagreements between the partners had become insurmountable, and they walked away. Paul Simon and Art Garfungal each embarked on solo careers and would reunite only a handful of times, including for the famed concert in Central Park 11 years after their split which would draw 500,000 screaming fans, though they'd never create music together again. But the little doo-wop duo from Queens, New York, whose second and third singles sold zero copies, who shuffled through countless unsuccessful iterations, from the Peptones to Tom and Jerry to True Taylor to Kane and Gar, and whose debut album flopped so thunderously it nearly broke up the partnership for good, would go on to sell 100 million records worldwide, making Simon and Garfunkel one of the best-selling musical duos of all time. 
still crazy after all these years. Write your goal in pen, but your path in pencil. No truer words have ever been spoken, and Simon and Garfunkel lived it. Every career has a fork in the road. It's that critical moment where you have to make a choice. Most of the time, you don't recognize how important that choice is in the moment. Paul Simon was in England licking his wounds after their first album sank like a stone. But producer Tom Wilson saw the beauty in The Sound of Silence, but also saw that the musical landscape was changing. So he remixed the song. Simon was not happy. But when Paul Simon saw the success of the remix, he made a choice. He submerged his ego, accepted the remix, and the new direction. It was probably the most important fork in the road for Simon and Garfunkel. Had they not accepted that change, their career might have died Wednesday morning at 3 a.m. Moments like these can be fraught with danger. So often in this podcast, we talk about protecting your vision, that what makes you different makes you valuable. And when people want to change or alter your vision, it can dilute your work. But every once in a while, someone comes along who cares. They can see the beauty in your work, the power of it, and they have your very best interests at heart. So they make thoughtful suggestions. This is where you have to love, honor, and obey your gut feelings because those changes you resist just might be rocket fuel. Paul Simon once said, My whole artistic life has always been about change, 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 move on, move on. It's the only thing I find interesting. Well, he didn't always feel that way. But by embracing change, Simon and Garfunkel would go on to sell over 100 million albums in just six short years, instead of splitting up and wondering what might have been. Never, ever give up. Simon and Garfunkel. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, 1990. Grammy Awards, 7. Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, 2003. Rolling Stone Greatest Duos in History, Number 3. Sounds of Silence preserved by the Library of Congress in the National Recording Registry, 2012. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. We don't regret to inform you, our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Tunes are provided by APM Music. Major sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like Rejecting Bad Out of Hell from Season 1. Bad Out of Hell is one of the top albums of all time, according to Rolling Stone. But before selling over 40 million copies worldwide, it was rejected over 40 times. You can follow our network on social at Apostrophe Pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.